Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Sometimes anger is a very necessary response to a situation. If someone is being oppressed right in front of you, Anger is what motivates you to speak up. It's the catalyst for, for justice. Sometimes anger is a very necessary response to a situation. Hi, I'm Mark Groves. I'm a human connection specialist and founder of Create the Love. At an early point in my life, I became obsessed with understanding relationships, the intricacies of how people connect. And through this exploration, I have created a life and a business dedicated to learning out loud and exploring how we interact with each other and the world. This podcast brings the world's top thought leaders, spiritual luminaries, physicians, scientists, researchers, best-selling authors, and health and wellness experts under one roof to discuss the good, the bad, the messy, and of course, the beautiful parts of the human experience. Welcome to the Mark Groves Podcast. I can't wait to dive in with you. Welcome to another episode of the Mark Groves Podcast. I have returning guest, Manoj Diaz. Welcome, my friend. Hello, old friend. Good to see you. It's so good to have you. For the people listening, uh, Manaj is a meditation teacher. He's an author. He's also the co-founder of the app called Open, which I'm sure we'll get to talking a little bit more about that. I had the absolute honor of surprisingly landing in the beautiful design of your app when Kylie had downloaded. And she's like, you got to come check out this app. The design's amazing. And I look at it and I'm like, well, this is Minaj's app. And that, wait, that's Ali Ma's teaching on there. This is amazing. So uh, the app looks beautiful and I look forward to chatting about, you know, how you guys created it and all that too. Thank you. Yeah, likewise. I think it's a real testament to creation when you can make a digital experience feel like an actual, like when I opened it, I felt like I was in some sort of Buddhist temple or something, but it was <laughs> on my iPhone. Yeah, it must have been a pretty cool Buddhist temple. Yeah, yeah, a lot. Very designed forward. Yeah, I mean, all the ones that I've been to in my life, uh, smelly, dingy, uh, have great energy. But uh, yeah, there's you know mice floating around and and all of that. So yeah, it was an upgrade from that. <laughs> so I, yeah, I wanted to explore with you today because you talk a lot about breathwork, meditation, these types of tools. And I think one of the greatest challenges that we experience in romantic relationships, but life and relationships in general, is being able to not just navigate our feelings, but also not react from them. Like I feel so much of our world is created through our reactivity and not, you know, embracing mm -hmm. our emotion in whatever way that even is possible. You know, so much of, of my work has been around understanding the internal experience that you know we're having in this day-to-day -day thing called life. But it's also about reconciling that with the external experience. 
And we obviously don't live in silos. We don't live in a vacuum. We are constantly interacting with people. We are constantly feeling things because of those people. And it becomes a way of how do we move through this world, really understanding how that relationship exists for us. Um, we know from basic mindfulness principles that the term that John Kabat-Zinn uses often is, you know, understanding our internal, external experience in a non-judgmental way, a non-judgmental attitude. But I find that really difficult. Like, of course, you're going to, of course, you're going to be judging what you feel. Of course, you're going to be processing and analyzing and reconciling that with past experiences, you know, what you're absorbing on social media, what your therapist says, you know, what you hear on a podcast and all those sorts of things. So for me, how we move through this world, reconciling our feelings is through wisdom. And wisdom is really what we cultivate through meditation practice, breathwork practice, mindfulness practice. And essentially wisdom is understanding our own minds. It's understanding that, whoa, I've just been triggered by something. There is a feeling. <laughs> that feeling could be heat in the chest. It could be like a, a clenching, could be a constriction. And now I'm feeling anger because of it. You know, And that's the first stage. The second stage is not to actually suppress that because I think we are taught culturally that certain feelings are good, certain feelings are bad. Um, and one of my pet peeves in the wellness world is that the, the only feeling that you're really allowed to, to cultivate is happiness and joy. But the reality is just, that's just not our lived experience. I mean, it's not my lived experience. No. Sure. Uh, you know, I navigate anger, sadness, grief, uh, rage and over the years, me reconciling that with the knowledge of how feelings and emotions work and how my body processes these things has really helped me to, to navigate those things. But um, that's really the interplay that and the intersection that I work with is how do we first allow ourselves to feel what we feel and mm -hmm. then cultivating this quality of our mind, of our awareness, how can we have the wisdom to be able to use that and harness that and not avoid it or run away from it or suppress it. Well, this tool to be able to move from, because when you said judgment, like judgment of emotions, to live in a world where we don't judge our emotions. I mean, I agree with you. That feels like sometimes an impossible task, especially if we haven't trained the mind to be observant of the feeling and then to, so how do we even create space between if I'm someone who, when I get upset or I do something, let's say, quote unquote, wrong, or, or I get defensive, let's say, in my romantic relationship. And then my thoughts are like, you always do this. This is classic. You're not, you know, underlying not enoughness. How do I even begin the journey of going from like, I don't even know how I can see my way through being able to navigate conflict with some form of regulation? Mm you know, to, to this place of non-judgment or, or the attempt to maintain a space of non-judgment? I mean, the, the beauty of, of mindfulness and, and meditation is that, and our brains actually, is that they're malleable, you know, because of neuroplasticity, we know that our brains can, can reshape and reform due to repeated experiences. And so Viktor Frankl said it the best, and I use this example a lot, you know, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And within that space is our power to choose. And within our choice lies our growth and our freedom. And I'm sure I butchered that at some point. But when he talks about the space, he's really talking about mindfulness. There's a stimulus and there's the response. And so that space we can cultivate. We can, we can learn to operate more within that space over time. And, hey, look, I'll be the first to admit even after 14 years, 15 years of practice, I still forget to operate in that space. I'll be reactive with my partner. You know, I'll be reactive with people at work. But it's a lot less than I was perhaps 15 years ago. And I'm a lot more aware of, oh, shit, I overreacted at that point. But the stimulus is first being really present to what's in our body at that moment, like what actually is affected in that moment. And anger is something that I've had to navigate, you know, throughout my life as a byproduct of my childhood. And for me, anger is very quick to arise in, in my interpersonal relationships. And I know exactly where it arises. It arises in the chest for me. And I feel like this nodding in, in my stomach. And so these days, as soon as, you know, something triggers me, I'm 
placing my attention on the body. I'm like, oh, where do I feel this? And then mm. I feel the knot. And as soon as I go to the body and not the reaction from, from the mind, I'm creating that space. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm here. I, I can give myself permission to feel the anger. And I think anger, as an example, is something so beautiful, so powerful. If we can learn to harness the emotion, if we can learn to harness the power of, of that feeling, because for me, it focuses, it gets me super clear, it gets me super energized. Uh, historically, I've reacted from that. You know, I've let my emotions get out of the way and my mind hasn't been present to it. But these days, I can use it, it can fuel me, and I can navigate a discussion a lot easier. But that space is really mindfulness, you know, and one is meditation that helps us with that. But, you know, if you're not a meditator, and, and that's fine, being mindful really supports that. Uh, it's simply watching. How am I reacting in this moment? Am I reacting in a way that is causing harm to myself and to others? And does that feel good? And if the answer is no, then you have a choice. And that choice, again, is mindfulness, the ability to choose how we respond moment to moment. And so over time, what we learn is in almost any given moment, there's a choice. One choice leads us towards more suffering, whether that's another argument with our partner, whether that's sleeping on the couch, whether that's just being grumpy, you know, whatever it is. And another choice leads us towards happiness and ease and a sense of inner peace. And so then hopefully we have the wisdom to be able to choose happiness as opposed to, to suffering. If you listen to this podcast, then you know how much I value things like meditation, breath work, as well as movement practices like yoga. Minaj invited me to try out some classes on the open app, and I gotta say, I loved it. And not only is the app from a design perspective aesthetically gorgeous and beautiful, it was really calming. And my breathwork class actually didn't feel like a digital experience. It felt very much like I was in a mindfulness studio, but on my phone. And the on-demand library had something for every mood, every need, and every energy level. And the teachers are amazing. I personally, right now, my favorites are Minaj and Ali M. If you've never done anything like breathwork before, just to give you some context of how it can help, it really does provide quick relief from things like stress, it helps alleviate anxiety, and for me, it allows a deep presence in my body and an enhanced ability to self-reflect when I'm triggered in those moments of life that you know happen in relationship and, and just in life in general. And meditation has allowed me to witness my mind. It's allowed me to observe my thoughts. And yoga for me is like a moving meditation. It's gentler on my body than my HIIT training and for sure a necessary balance to my kettlebell and weight training. So with all that said, I think you would love it. You should go give it a try. You can invite all your friends to do a class with you. And I've worked with Open to get you 30 days free to try it out and see it if you enjoy it as much as I do. There's a link in the show notes. You can go to withopen.com slash create the love and use the code create the love for 30 days free. So once again, W-I-T-H-O-P-E-N.com slash create the love. And I'll be sharing this link on socials. As I said, it's in the show notes. Make sure you use the code create the love at checkout and you get that 30 days free. And you get unlimited live and on-demand breathwork, meditation, yoga, Pilates, and more. And I'm excited to hear how you like it. I'll see you in class. What do you think prevents us from leaving the familiar loop? Like when you're in that space and normally you might choose to go left or react, mm -hmm. that you actually take this wiser direction. Why do you think we tend to stay in, in the old thing, even though we know that what will produce the life, the results we want is actually on this other side? Familiarity, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's familiar. Like it's, it's modeled to us from a young age or it's just our uh, habitual response to things. It's, it's habituated within us. It feels normal. It feels natural. Um, and again, you know, shout out to my dad. I love you if you're hearing this, but you know, he grew <laughs> up with a lot of, he grew up with a lot of anger and, and his uh, spectrum of emotions and feelings were anger, rage, or complete joy and happiness. There was no middle ground for him, right? So for me, I, I growing up, I was also very much like that. If something triggered me, I wouldn't say, hey, I don't like that, or that doesn't feel good, or, you know, that doesn't sit right with me. I would suppress, suppress, because I didn't want to be like my father, and then yeah. I would explode, right? And that's a very familiar pattern for me. Over time, what I've had to really learn and sit with is first to be present to what's experienced, and then to, to change that loop, to change that pattern. 
and to change that pattern, it's actually giving voice to, to what I'm feeling. And then realizing that whenever I, I raise my voice and if I tell my partner, you know, you shouldn't do that, like that never actually works. <laughs> like, it actually never I works. I this. It doesn't work. Right? Yet we keep, we keep doing it. And so after a little while, I'm like, hey, this is actually just not effective <laughs> if I want to get my own way. It's not an effective way of, of handling things. And, you know, it, it becomes a choice that becomes clear over time is that each moment gives you, you know, freedom or suffering, freedom or suffering. And I want to be free. I don't, I don't care about being bright all the time. I want to be free. I love that. You know, could you speak more to, because you spoke about anger and you spoke about anger being on some level beautiful, like a beautiful experience, a powerful experience. Can you speak more to why anger is important and I think a lot of the times people are afraid of meditation or that silent experience because of what they might find. And mm. in all your teaching, I'm curious, let's start with the beauty of anger. And then I, I can circle back to, I really want to know, like, what are people most afraid of when they start this practice or what prevents people from this practice? Yeah. I mean, they're both interrelated really, but the, the beauty of, of anger is that it is just a feeling. It's an energy. And this is not to sound esoteric or poetic in any way, but it, it essentially is. It's, it's a form of energy. Uh, the same way love can be a form of energy, the same way you know, sadness is, is, an, is an energetic feeling in the body. What usually happens with anger is we've been conditioned to believe that it is a bad feeling. There are good feelings, there are bad feelings. And the reality is that it's just a feeling. The good and the bad is, is the meaning that we actually give to it. If we learn that sometimes anger is a very necessary response to a situation. It's, you know, if someone is being oppressed right in front of you, anger is what motivates you to speak up. It's mm -hmm. the catalyst for, for justice. If, you know, someone is about to attack your family or, or friends, like anger is what motivates you to stand up. It's what changes worlds. Actually, revolutions have happened because of anger. You know, when enough is enough, like you're, you're motivated to do that. But where anger has become harmful is when people don't know how to harness that anger, mm -hmm. the energy of, of the anger, and they react because of it. And they might react violently. They might react in an abusive way. And then anger just loses its power, right? But if we can be really present with the energy of anger, really genuinely present with it, we can see how it actually sharpens us in that moment, right? It's, it's like the, the flight or fight response. Uh, in a flight or fight response, when we experience it in our body, our blood rushes to the brain, the, the stomach begins to kind of knot up. All of these are kind of teaching us or telling us that our body is ready for action, for battle. Mm -hmm. And anger is the same thing. Uh, it can be really harnessed, really powerful, and it motivates us. So the dopamines in our brains, we're, we're really ready to go. We're ready to take action. But to get to that place, we have to be really familiar and be in a good relationship with our bodies. And that is a very, very tough thing for a lot of people to, to yeah. get to because our bodies contain so much and so many emotional wounds, you know, trauma and, and things like that, that anger can, can feel like a traumatic response to us. And if we don't have a healthy relationship with our body and, and if we can't sit in the anger, then we'll want to leave that. And that again is when we, you know, become abusive, when we yell, when we harm people, is that we don't have the ability to really contain the body in that moment. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. Is that all the, oh, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, Brady PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. I think of the differentiation between maybe what you're speaking to of clean anger versus aggression and the things, you know, like clean anger, if I understand you correctly, sort of reclaims or claims or fights, but in a way that is protective of ourself, protective of a group, protective as where 
anger that's destructive, it actually doesn't build relationships. It doesn't build intimacy. It doesn't build trust. You know, I think for someone like myself who didn't have really a relationship to anger, I didn't know how to mm. access it. I wouldn't have self-identified, but now I would in hindsight self-identify as being kind of a doormat, you know, a people pleaser, mm. a, a good guy, quote unquote. And I found it really hard to access anger. You know, I was afraid mm. of it. I was, as you said, if you if you don't have a good relationship with it, I didn't have boundaries because I didn't know how to even access the part of me that needed that. I remember when I did this group therapy thing, one of the processes was that I had to rage. And I remember when I accessed this place of exasperation, like where I had never really released like the level of like, no. And oh my God, below that was just like, first being able to witness myself with that level of power was really mm. beautiful. And that I was allowed to only by, you know, being in the presence of other people and I think in, in experiences. But then also I just wept, which was really interesting. Is that, do you find like grief hides behind that or? In my experience, you asked me this before, like, you know, why do people really struggle to sit with themselves and what are they afraid of? Often when it comes to anger, what lies beneath the anger is heartbreak. Hmm. You know, it's, it's yeah, genuine, it it's genuine sense. heartbreak. And because we, we don't allow our hearts to break either because, again, that's not allowed, that's not seen as, as valid because for many of us we don't have that relationship where we can let our hearts genuinely break and allow our world to fall apart, that we build these walls and it becomes hard to keep holding these walls and we become angry because we have to hold walls. Mm -hmm. and we realize we're in a battle with our own feelings and our own emotions and our own minds and then the anger spreads out, rage comes out, all of these, you know, different expressions of resistance kind of come out. But mm -hmm. that's often what, what lies underneath. And again, that takes a lot of work for anyone that hasn't had emotions and feelings modeled to them in a healthy way from a young age. Um, it becomes something that we are very, very unfamiliar with. And that intimacy as well with ourselves to let ourselves go there is something that we, we work on throughout our lives, you know, with therapy, yeah. with, with all these different practices that we have access to. That resistance, that's interesting. As you said that, you know, we don't let our hearts break. I think of my resistance to meditation at the beginning of, of starting to do it. And I would set my timer on my watch and do it for five minutes. And I'd be looking for like, oh, fuck, like, are we there yet? Are we there mm -hmm. yet? And I think I was really afraid of what I would find. You know, I was afraid mm -hmm. of unattended to thoughts, unattended to feelings. When you spoke about the anger, accessing anger, and then I think what I experienced was the awareness of all the times I needed what I just accessed, and that caused me to grieve. Does that make sense? Yeah, regret. Yeah, yeah. Like, why didn't, like, I'm sad because now I recognize all the moments I could have used this. It, what usually happens when people begin a meditation practice is that perhaps for the first time they've, they've stopped, they've slowed down. And instead mm. of looking outward, they, they begin to look inward. And as they begin to look inward, everything that they have been running away from, everything that they've been holding up or, you know, keeping at bay begins to come. So, you know, you'll often hear people saying, oh, I just fall asleep as soon as I get, start to meditate or I get sad or I get agitated. I can't sit still. And these things are present in your everyday life, but all of a sudden you've stopped. Mm. There's nothing you have to do. And there they are. They haven't really gone away. And so one of the ways that we can respond to these things so they do go away is to actually look at them, is to actually face them. Uh, and one of my favorite teachers, Joseph Goldstein, says, if you want to get to know your mind, sit down and observe it. And as you begin to sit down and observe it, you'll see that. You're like, oh, shit, like I'm... I'm, I wish I had this. And then there is what we call the wanting mind, you know, mm. or it's like, oh, like yesterday's practice was a lot better. And then there's the comparing mind. And then maybe the thought is, oh, I, I'm, I can't meditate. I'm not good at this. I wish I was like this guy that I met one day and he could meditate for four hours. And that's the, the comparison mind or the fixing mind. And you'll begin to see your mind and, and all the different states that it goes through all the different ways it just avoids being here with what is because often being here with 
just what is is very hard. You know, it's very, very hard. When we can't distract ourselves from external stimulation or thinking, we have to just be with ourselves and our body. The grief will arise, the anger will arise, the anxiety will arise, and there's nothing to grasp to, nothing to cling to. And that's a very unfamiliar place for so many of us. Yeah, I would imagine all of our nudges, our addictions come full swing, which I don't, I think maybe now we're starting to see things like our phones as addictions. It it's, occurs to me as you say that, that, that it's almost like we're terrified of the totality of the present moment. We're terrified of the totality of our human experience. That's, I mean, that's really what it is. Yeah. And if we can't sit with it, I guess it's the similar, right? If we can't sit with the realities of whatever is actually going on, because so much of this doing, 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 which I relate to a lot, you know, before I met Kai, I would have identified as very outgoing extrovert, you know, all these busy love being out with people. And I started to see that so much of it was an avoidance of just being still. Yeah. It's also what we've had to potentially do from a young age in order to feel safe. Yeah. That's the other thing. You know, for me, I developed very early on the faculties of my mind. I was an incredible storyteller, writer, had a very vivid imagination because, you know, I grew up in, I was an immigrant when I moved from Sri Lanka to Australia and I experienced a lot of abuse and a lot of racial abuse and new country. And in order for me to feel safe and survive in that moment, I had to, to, to go off into my mind. And as I got older, my mind just kept on getting stronger, so much so that there was so much knowledge, cognition, like education that I put into it. But I was completely divorced from my body. I was completely mm-hmm. divorced from the feeling world. You know, letting love in was difficult because it just was very unfamiliar. I could understand it conceptually. I could connect to people on a conceptual level. Um, I could look at someone and be like, oh, they fit these boxes. Mm-hmm. Yes, they're beautiful. Great job. And connect on that level. But on an intimate level, on a more embodied level, it was very difficult and tough for me. And so that's some of the work that, you know, we're, we're able to do with, with awareness-based practices like yoga and breath work and meditation, but also therapy and, you know, somatic therapists and um, embodied therapists. They really help us get back in touch with the feeling world. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. I've really started to now continue to consider that where the origins of my work too are very cerebral. Like I wanted mm. to do studies. I wanted to understand the science of positive relationships. I wanted to understand the science of relational dysfunction, communication breakdown. What's the impact, you know, all the things that trial, you know, studies could show us labs could teach us, but you know, it took, this awareness that I was, again, as, as you mentioned, disconnected from the actual somatic experience. And I did, you know, I've done tons of different trainings and tons of different interventions personally. And I remember when I worked with a somatic therapist, it was like, I moved through something that first I never even knew how to identify because it was body related. And Mm. a lot of my early, I was a, um, in the neonatal ICU as a baby, I was preemie, quite premature. And I was removed from my mom for 10 days and in an mm-hmm. incubator thing. And uh, I had this flashback during a shamanic psychotherapy meets shamanic uh, work, cool workshop that I attended. And I had this vision of my mom being taken from me, but then I couldn't verbalize it. It was this really weird feeling where I had no language. I just cried. And through somatic therapy, I've been able to access that because you don't have words when you're a baby. So it was like this really, can we speak more to the benefits of somatics? And then how do we, because what you said about being here and not, you know, that journey to our hearts, I think so many of us struggle with that. So 
maybe the benefits of somatics and then and what that means and, and why it's important because it feels like it does bypass the intellect. And then if we were to want to take the journey that you took, how would we start and, and what was your access point? Yeah, thank you. And I, I think you actually shared it really beautifully there where you said, I just cried. I didn't think about it. Uh, I just cried. And then yeah. that itself is a beautiful expression of being in the body because what many of us tend to do is if there are tears, for example, instead of just letting ourselves break down and cry and really release, the cognition will interfere. It's like, why are you crying? Don't cry. Don't be a little yeah. baby. Like he doesn't deserve it or she doesn't deserve it or they don't deserve your tears. And then there becomes this battle with the body having a very natural response. Mm. And so the the work of somatic mindfulness, which is really what, I'm uh, involved in is bringing awareness not just to the body but actually trying to inhabit the body and then there's a there's a there's a nuance to that because we can become aware of the body but for many of us we don't exist within the body and uh, one of my favorite you know teachers and and um, brains in, in this sort of work her name is Judith Blackstone um, and she really talks about how many of us fail to in, inhabit the body in, in moments throughout our lives. So, uh, you know, meditation, yoga, practice, it firstly, it crosses over into awareness, which is what we need to begin. You know, like we are doing yoga, we feel, you know, our palms connected to the mat. We might stick our butt up to the sky. We start to breathe and we're like, oh, okay, like there's all these different things in our body and I'm, I'm getting becoming aware of. And then as we move through the class, we're aware of how our breath is moving. And you'll perhaps get to a point within the end of the class, if you've had a really great class, where you're like, oh, I feel really like grounded. Uh, and that's like the first stage of, of inhabiting the body. The second stage is actually dropping our consciousness within that space. Mm. So not just looking at it as an object, like the subject, me, is viewing my foot as an object. It actually merges the two, the subject and the object are one. So I am now the foot. <laughs> I'm experiencing this moment as the foot. And it sounds very woo even as I say it. But if you just practice it for a moment, like drop your consciousness into your feet. And as you breathe, you feel your feet breathe. And as you feel all the subtle sensations that are happening there, you're not viewing it from a bird's eye view. You're like you, you're experiencing it. And then you make your way up from your feet to your legs, to your knees, all the way through your body. And there's this remarkable experience that happens throughout the end of it where you realize what I'm experiencing internally and externally, there is a, a connection with that. Like I can experience you and I can experience me and I can experience myself as a fully inhabited being, you know, I don't have to be in my head trying to work out oh what what question is mark about to ask me next and i hope i answer it correctly and i hope i sound smart and i hope i sound this and and already i've left the body at that moment i'm i'm up here but to be in here is to to have a very intimate moment with whoever you're interacting with and even if it's nature like we've all had those moments where we've been in our bodies and we've just felt so connected to everything around us those are moments where we're really inhabiting the space underneath the chin and so somatics is essentially, somatic mindfulness essentially, is our ability to constantly be in, in relationship to our inner world. Um, and there are, you know, the conceptual body, we talk about it in mindfulness a lot. Uh, the conceptual body is our ideas about the body. I'm good looking, I'm thin, I'm this, I'm that. Then there is the, the subtle body we speak to a lot, which is really the feelings and the emotions. And then there's like the inner body, which is, you know, I did the deepest part of ourselves, which is the space that you can't really explain, the, the space where you just feel intrinsically connected. Flow happens from that space. There is no anticipation. There is no rumination. There is just this expression of, of the present moment. And it takes work for a lot of us to, to arrive in that space. Um, it takes work because we haven't had that modeled and our society doesn't live in an embodied way. It lives right. very much in a disembodied way where from the moment we wake up in the morning, we grab our phones, we check our schedules, we look on social media, and already we've left our inner world. You know, we haven't woken up and been like, hmm, how am I feeling today? 
yeah, this feels good. <laughs> like what's, what's going on internally? It's like, no, as soon as we wake up, it's outside. And for the next 16 hours that we're awake, we're outside, we're outside, we're outside. True. And so um, the invitation through some of these practices is to come back a little bit, you know, because we can't exist solely on the inside. We have to be in relationship with the external world, but we can inhabit ourselves a lot more. So as we move through our day, there's more of a synergy between the mind and the body. And that synergy is super powerful. You know, that when we match our cognition, which is already so powerful, which this sense of embodiment, it's just a very, it's a very different experience to, to life when we're moving like that. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, because we, as you said, we tend to live solely outside, which is so survival based. You know, you think about it, like if you're in hustle culture, you're trying to survive, you're trying to pay rent, you're trying, not to mention that our phones are designed to have us live in them. You know, like they're perfectly designed. I think about this a lot that unless we develop a mindfulness practice, we don't really stand a chance against phones. We don't stand because they have hundreds of behavioral scientists figuring out how to make it so you don't stand a chance, which is really exploitive, but true. Absolutely. You know, and again, I notice my body when I go a week or two weeks spending too much time on my phone, I start to feel just icky. Like I start to feel tight and constricted and that's when I know I shouldn't be using my phone right before I go to bed. Um, you know, I've done this new trick recently where I've deleted Instagram and Facebook and, and Twitter and from my home screen. So if I have to use those apps, I have to go and type it in <laughs> and then use it. Or I use it on my desktop, which is just cut out the, the habituated response that I might have had previously when I'm waiting at the coffee shop to just reach and grab my phone. Yeah. Or whenever I'm feeling uh, an emotion I don't like to distract myself by, by going into those things. So I don't know how else to move through this world without a mindfulness practice. Uh, it's just almost a biological imperative at this point for our own well-being. And I don't say that because, you know, it's, it's my industry or my work, but I, I struggle with it too. And, you know, it's just something that for people that don't have a mindfulness practice, I don't know how they can work with that. It's just so much tougher. I don't know how you can operate in successful relationships without a mindfulness practice. You know, yeah. I, I have no idea. Like if we're trying to be better communicators, better partners, better family members, better parents, we have to cultivate that space you're talking about, that space that lives between, you know, the stimulus and the choice to do something more wise, to be something different. And I do think about how powerful that change is of, like, if you look at behavioral patterns and you look up your family tree, you can see the reactivity, you can see the defensiveness. And and that's why that act of, of creating mindfulness to think about where does this behavior come from and is it constructive to the life and relationships I want to create and what is, it seems like a kind of a non-negotiable, not even kind of, it seems like a non-negotiable because without self-awareness, you can't change your life. Like you can't. You really can't. You really can't. And it's not even about changing your life. You can't have the quality of life mm. that is your birthright. You know, right. it really is. It's like we, our natural state is a state of joy. It, it is a state of inner peace and it's a state of, of clarity. But so much of that has been clouded by you know, the external world and, and external stimulus. So if we want to enhance our relationships, if we want to enhance our solo time, you know, this, this understanding of ourselves is, is pivotal. And truthfully, it's, it doesn't take that long. It doesn't take that long to develop that. It just takes a commitment to realize that no more will I just let my days go by without awareness. Like I'm sick of having this kind of experience with the world. I want to feel free. Right. I want to feel um, in love. I want to, I want to access these states that 
are within me. And the only reason you're able to access them in the first place is because it's within you. <laughs> it's not that someone else is going to come along and place them inside of you. It's there and, and someone, you know, becomes a reflection of that. So, um, you know, developing a practice can be as simple as I'm not going to turn my phone on for the first two hours of the day and I'm just going to be really present. Um, another thing I always tell my students is the moment you realize you are no longer present is the moment you become present. So every time you realize mm. that, it's like, oh, cool, I'm present again. And you're having a conversation with your partner and you're thinking about food and you catch yourself. It's like, oh, I'm present. Come back. And, you know, from a, a neuroscientific perspective, every time you do that, you're essentially creating new neural pathways, you know, in, in the regions of the brain associated with emotion regulation, short-term memory and decision-making. So it has a, a health benefit as well, but above that, a very practical benefit is that your partner realizes you're really present with them. <laughs> and that's just beautiful in and of itself. Yeah, it is. Especially, I know if I have my phone and I'm talking to my partner, it's a quick way to, uh, for her to be like, deal breaker, put your phone down or this conversation is over. I'm like, great. Okay. Yeah. I'm not present. The other night I did uh, breath work, like a, a very, it was like a six minute breath work class of yours. And it mm. was kind of like a closing of the day kind of thing. It was really nice. And yeah. I was really struck by how even that short of a practice had me present in my body, counting the breaths, holding the breaths. One thing about breath work that I was afraid of in hindsight now, now it's one of my favorite practices but in hindsight, I was actually really afraid of how it made me feel. Like it was almost like I was so in my body. I was so alive. I was so, I couldn't, didn't know breath could do that to me. Like I felt like I just crushed a couple grams of psilocybin. Can you talk a little bit about the physiological process and maybe, um, again, I'm guessing it's similar fears to mindfulness. Yeah. I mean, it is and it isn't. I think the, the ultimate destination can be a similar place. You know, you're present and connected to yourself and the world around you. But the, the avenues there can be different. With mindfulness or, or meditation, it's more of a development of awareness. So you train in becoming more aware of your cognitive experience, your embodied experience, feelings, emotions. And you tend to access it through placing awareness on an object. Um, it could be your breath. It could be sounds. It could be sensations. It could just be just being like really present to this moment without any sort of anchor. Mm -hmm. With breath work, we're, we're taking more of a, an active approach. We're more engaged. So we're actively using our breath in a way to transform our physiological experience. Now, there are many types of, of breath work. It's important to also realize like a lot of these practices are indigenous practices. They're not practices that have been developed out of the blue. Some are for sure. There are practices that have been developed by the Navy SEALs and the Army and, and science and things like that. But a lot of these practices have been around in indigenous cultures for, for centuries. And it's simple because it's accessible at almost every point because it sits literally underneath your nose. Um, and so there are usually a, a few categories of breath work. There's up regulatory practices that give you energy and that stimulate your nervous system. And there are down regulatory practices, which, you know, calm you down, really ground you. And there are, you know, this category we call like transformational practices where Stanislav Grof was really instrumental. Stanislav Grof was a professor, I think it was at Harvard and he was working with Timothy Leary uh, on psychedelic research for a period of time. And then when Harvard banned him, uh, band Timothy Leary, I think, you know, Stanislav Grof was also kind of involved in that, in that whole process. And he really tried to explore ways of accessing transcendental states in a natural, safe and, and legal way and um, was the, the founder of holotropic breathwork. Um, interestingly, holotropic takes its uh, Latin name. I think it's holos. I could be wrong there. But uh, it essentially means to for wholeness it's it's cultivating wholeness huh. and i love that that definition of yeah, how the breath can help us really cultivate this sense of, of wholeness within us because it's already something that we possess the breath and so the transformational practices can range from 35 minutes to three hours in which we are you know hyperventilating essentially using a hyperventilated breathing practice that begins to not only affect our physiology, but also begins to, to transcend that and move into the mind. And we have 
you know, states of euphoria. We might have states, you know, our classes have people crying uncontrollably or laughing yeah. uncontrollably. And um, again, we're, we're moving beyond the mind, which is the really exciting part where we're cutting below the conceptual mind, where the mind is saying to us, oh, don't cry in a room full of people. This is really weird. And the body is just experiencing itself at that moment. <laughs> body's like, the, sorry, you don't have choice right now. Yeah, it's too late. Uh, and it becomes a really profound, profound experience. Yeah. But then there are these shorter practices, like, like you spoke about, which really prepare us for meditation or for the day. I use uh, my favorite breathing practice is one that was taught by a neuroscientist called Andrew Huberman. It's called oh, yeah. the, the physiological sigh. Essentially, it's one deep breath in and then followed by a, a quick, sharp breath. So I'll, I'll demonstrate it. Maybe we can do one together. Yeah, and then the exhale is a long, drawn-out breath out through the mouth. So we tend to do three of these, but we'll just do one. Take a big breath in. And another quick breath up. And then exhale slowly out the mouth. I mean, I already feel like lighter just from one. Right. And, and Huberman ex explains the, the side neuroscientific benefits of doing three of those. But it's uh, apparently the, the quickest way to reduce stress that, that we have access to. So it's something that I use throughout my day you know, in between yeah. meetings in LA traffic. Um, the breath can be so powerful. And I think we're just starting to, to realize um, the power that it really contains and how instantaneous it is to be able to shift our state, you know, whereas a yoga class or a meditation class takes some cultivation, takes some training, takes some time where people are like, am I doing it right? I don't know if I'm doing it right. Is it working? Whereas the breath gives you immediate feedback. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a, a really powerful tool that's, that's there with us all the time. So if we're entering this journey, like for the person listening, you know, we talked about being able to access your somatic experience, being able to create more space between who you have been and what you want to create accessing wisdom how might we start this practice or deepen it and um, maybe you could share just some of the opportunities that people have on your app like as i said at the beginning the design is insane i've done a few of the classes i've done some of the yoga classes with kai and yeah i'm curious if you could just maybe walk people through how to begin or continue that yeah, I think the, the one caveat I'll say is that accessing the body uh, is different for everyone. You know, for, for those of us that have had you know, complex trauma or emotional wounding, it can feel like a very foreign and unsafe place, in which cases I would always recommend working with a, a therapist to, to get to that place. But there are places that you can begin. And you know, in, in trauma-informed mindfulness training, we learn a lot about titration. Titration is this um, ability where you can very gently tap in and then tap out. It's like, you know, when you are about to go into the ocean and you're like, oh, it's a bit cold. You put your toe in there. It's like, oh, no, too cold. And then you maybe put a toe in again and maybe three toes. Maybe you submerge your foot. And then when you feel comfortable, maybe you, you'll dive in. And so exploring the body when there's trauma and, and emotional wounding is a little bit like that. And also working with, you know, someone that's qualified. But there are places we can begin to, to build this relationship with our bodies. Yoga is a really great way to do it. Breath work is another great way to do it. And of course, meditation and mindfulness. From there, it's a matter of what resonates with you. Because, you know, voices, different voices resonate with different people. Um, different people, like different teachers, will, you'll connect with. Um, but a good place to really begin is a practice called body scan which is a simple mindfulness practice where you just place your attention on the body, starting with your feet all the way up to the head and, and then maybe back down. Yeah, I would say that's, that's, the, that's the place that, that we really begin. But my real advice when it comes to exploring the body and somatics is to be very gentle with ourselves. We can bring this attitude of competition and achievement, which is, again, a disembodied state that we tend to go to where we feel like we have to constantly be 10 steps ahead of other people and we have to constantly be achieving and it's all about growth, nonstop growth, 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 growth. And just to be like, oh, this is a lifelong journey and a lifelong relationship I'm about to begin with my body. And you start very compassionately from that place because you'll slip up and you just keep coming back and you realize this relationship with my body is something that we're going to have to unravel over time. 
and there'll be childhood stuff that'll come. There'll be traumatic stuff that'll come. There'll be joy. There'll be screams, laughter. All of those things will, will happen. But if you're in true relationship, and you know you speak about this a lot, if you're in true relationship, it's a commitment to just show up for that person. And, and in this case, you're showing up day after day for your body. And uh, that takes lots of patience. Mm, that gentle process. I like that. The analogy of putting your toe in, at this point, I'm doing cold plunging. So I do really, <laughs> like, let's go all in. And with breath work, I definitely had to start with smaller, with meditation. I had to start, I couldn't even do five minutes, you know, and now I can sit for an hour. And it's incredible the benefits that it does for our life, our relationships. Manash, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your thoughts and your direction and your wisdom and giving us some tools to be able to dive deeper into ourselves, live the richness of life that we, you know, as you said, is our birthright. Manaj, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate you, your time for sharing your wisdom and giving us the access, this invitation to access this presence to a life that, as you said, is our birthright, to be present to the joy, to the possibility, to the totality of the moment and really cultivate that space between stimulus and response and access wisdom. I'm curious for the people listening, where can they find more of you? And I know that we have a special opportunity with open for you, the listeners. Of course. Yeah. I mean, firstly, thank you so much for your time. You're such a, a wonderful host. You ask such great questions and I'm always struck by how present you are whenever, whenever I've met you and, and spoken with you. So thank you for that. Um, you know, for me personally, you can um, get my book. It's available on Amazon. It's called Still Together. Uh, you can find me on Instagram or my website, which I rarely use these days. I don't know who uses websites anymore. Uh, but for, for all the guests or anyone listening that wants to, to really, yeah, explore these practices and, and start to build a relationship with your body, uh, it's open.com uh, on the App Store there's also a polyamory app called Open, so it's it's not that one. It's <laughs> Open Mindfulness, uh, and there is a special code called Create the Love that you can access for 30 days for free. Perfect. Well, for all of you listening, you get 30 days to check it out, try it out, and uh, begin those practices or continue and deepen them. Thank you so much for being here, my friend. I really appreciate it. Yeah, same. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. If this episode resonated with you, one of the best ways to support the show is to go subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any more. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to it, or share the episode with your community on Instagram or whatever social place you like to hang out. This helps get it into more people's ears, and I'm so grateful for your support, always. Thanks again for tuning in. Much love.